Be taking out your Bibles and turning to Psalm 2. Psalm 2, that will be the basis of our study this evening. And you might want to put a marker there as we'll leave that from time to time in this lesson, but we'll be coming back to Psalm 2. Last week, we studied the first psalm, and we looked at a couple of quotes from some that had like Scroggy and Leopold on the Psalms, and how they made the point that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 really and truly serve as an introduction to the book of Psalms as a whole. In the Old Testament as a whole, there are really two main things that are dealt with. There is the relationship of man to the law, and then there is prophecy. And in the book of Psalms, that holds true as well. There are Psalms that are about man's relationship to the law. And there are a lot of, there are a lot of Psalms that are prophecies, in particular, messianic prophecies. And so we looked at Psalm 1 last week, and said this week we want to look at Psalm 2. We want to look at Psalm 2, and so here's our goal going forward. We've studied the first two Psalms at groundwork. The hope is that once a month, maybe not necessarily always, but we want to look at maybe once a month a Psalm. Just pick a Psalm that we're going to look at in the week, in that uh, one week out of the month, hopefully. And then, because there's such encouragement that we can gain from the book of Psalms. And so, this study tonight, and last week's are going to lay that groundwork, and then we'll, this will be our psalm for this month, and then maybe starting August, of like maybe the first or second week or so, we'll go through another psalm. But this is sort of laying the groundwork. So maybe if you're reading through the psalms, which I would encourage you to do, read through a psalm a day, as there's a lot of lessons we can learn from those. This helps lay the groundwork to what the book is all about. So last week, Psalm 1, we looked at is the relationship between man and the law. Remember, blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. And so it described the righteous man in 1 through 3, it described the unrighteous man in 4 and 5, and then in verse 6 described the way of both, and we looked at that last week. But tonight we're going to look at Psalm 2, and this is the other side of what the Old Testament often deal with, and this is a prophecy. This is a messianic prophecy in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is about the victory of the Lord's anointed. So if you haven't already turned to Psalm 2, we'll read that, and then we'll go through and study it this evening. Psalm 2, beginning at verse 1. Why do the nations rage... And the people plot vain things. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then He shall speak to them in His wrath and distress them in His deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son lest He be angry 
and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Well, let's go through and study the psalm. Three things we want to look at this evening. We want to take a look at the text like we did last week. Last week we looked at the text and some practical lessons. So we're going to spend some time going through the text itself and seeing what it's saying. We'll go through this text faster than we did last week because we want to spend a good deal of time on the second point, and that is the use of Psalm 2 in the New Testament. Psalm 1 is a psalm about the relationship to the law, but Psalm 2 being messianic in nature is is quoted several times in the New Testament. And when we look at Psalm 2, Two's quotations in the New Testament and the context of where it's quoted, it helps us appreciate and understand the psalm even more. And then we'll talk about some practical lessons we learn from that. But let's start by looking at the text this evening. Let's look at the text of Psalm 2. Remember, the psalms are songs that would be sung by the Jews, and like our songs, they were often divided into these different stanzas. And so this one has four stanzas, each containing three verses. So the first section is verses 1 through 3. And what 1 through 3 is, is the opposition to the Lord and the anointed. Beginning at verse 1 again. Why do the nations rage and the people plot vain things? Look at the end of verse 2. It says they were taking counsel, or they set themselves and took counsel together. In verse 2, against the Lord and His anointed. This is opposition of the Lord and His anointed. Remember at the beginning, the nations in verse 1, he says the nations are raging. Why do the nations rage in the first part of verse 1? But it's not just the nations raging, particularly in this section, it's the latter half of verse 1 through 3, it's the people plot. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? So the people are not just raging, they're plotting something. But he describes it here. What is being plotted? He describes it in verse 1 as being a vain thing. As you move throughout this psalm, we're going to understand even more why it is that what the nations and what the people are plotting is vain because we'll see the Lord's response in a moment. But right now they're plotting what they think is a good idea, but it is in vain. It's a vain thing that they plot. Here's what the plot is. The plot is in verse 2. It's against the Lord and His anointing. They are in opposition to God, and they are in opposition to His Son. So here are the nations who are raging, who are plotting against God and against His Son. And what this plot really consists of is, verse 3, they think they can sort of break themselves away from God. Look at verse 3. Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their courts from us. It was as if they thought they could get out from under the rule of God. They could get away from God. They could plot against God and against His anointed one. And they could sort of break away, verse 3. They could cast away the cords. This decision they made could sort of separate themselves to if we oppose God, then we can sort of distance ourselves from God and from His anointed one and sort of break ourselves away as if everything's going to be okay. That's how the nations are reacting in verses 1 through 3. But it's important we know here in the text that the verse, the first stanza here, this first three verses where the nations rage and they plot this vain thing is they say we can, they're sort of looking at it as they could distance themselves and break away from God, break these, the, the bond, cast away the cords. 
But that's not so. Look at the second stanza. That's the next three verses. This is the Lord's indignation. Look at verse 4. He, the Lord laughs. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. You know, when you look at verse 4 here, this is not a laughter. The, the picture here of God, of God laughing is not Him laughing because they did evil, because God finds no pleasure in that. Verse 5 is going to point that out, that it points out His wrath. But this laughter of verse 4 is more like, here are the people plotting against God, plotting against His Anointed One, and they think they can break away. They can break the bond. They can cast away the cords. And this laughter here is more is more God sitting back like, you really think that you can break away from Me? That you can get away from the decree and the decisions and the purpose and everything that's laid out by the Creator. Do you really think you can escape me? And here are these people thinking they can get away from God and this laughter is, do you really think that that's more like, do you really think that's possible? That you could break away from the Lord and face no consequences. That you could cast the cords and not feel His wrath. In fact, there's seen even more in verse 5. Then He, verse 5, shall speak to them in His wrath and distress them in His deep displeasure. What verse 5 is saying is, when you see this laughter, what we think of as laughter, I think this is where we under, can help us, that verse 5 helps us in understanding verse 4, is oftentimes laughter is something of joy. Somebody tells a funny joke, we laugh. That's funny, because we're enjoying ourselves. But this laughter is not God laughing because something, because there's of joy that's found. It's more like, do you really think you can do that? Because here you're going to face my wrath instead. Here I am displeased with you. And you think you can escape. So here the people are in the first few verses and they're plotting against the Lord. They're plotting against His anointed. And they think they can break away and God laughs and He's angry with them. You really think you can break away? Do you really think you can escape my wrath? That, that breaking the bonds and cutting the cords will help you escape? And in verse 6, instead of them being able to sort of thwart God's plan, and we'll see that more when we look at this use of, of the psalm in the New Testament, instead of thwarting God's plan, He still sets up His king. Now we'll see how that passage, verses 1 and 2, are used in the New Testament later on, and that will help us appreciate even more this psalm. But at this point, just understand the fact, they think they can oppose God, God laughs, He's still angry with them, and guess what? Yet I have set up my king. Despite your response, despite what you thought you could do, I have still set up my king on my holy hill of Zion. You cannot stop God. That's what's taking place in the psalm. They thought they could oppose Him. They thought they could sort of stop God's plans. But God's plans still hold true. And He's angered by the fact that they thought that they could break away or cast themselves away. But the fourth stanza of the psalm is verses 7 through 9. This is a divine decree concerning the anointed. Look at verse 7. Here's this decree given out. Verse 7. I will declare the decree. 
The Lord has said to me, here's the decree. Verse 7, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now again, we'll understand this text even more when we get to the New Testament uh, use of it later on. But let's understand the purpose now. The decree is, you are my son, today I have begotten you. The king set up as God's son, verse 7. Look at verse 8. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. This is quite interesting here. The people plotting, the people that are in opposition, the people that are raging are the nations. Look at verse 1 again. Why do the nations rage and the people plot vain things? In verse 8, that's the very thing that is the son's inheritance. Verse 7, you are my son today, I have begotten to you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. The very ones that were plotting, the very ones that were raging against the Son and against, and against the Father are the very things that are the inheritance of the Son in verse 8. And in verse 9, here's what He will do to them. He shall break them with a rod of iron and shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. They thought they could break the bonds from God and the anointed. But instead, in verse 9, they were broken with a rod of iron. You thought you could oppose God. You thought you could oppose the anointed. You thought you could break away from us, and instead you are broken by the rod of iron. You were dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel. And so this is the divine decree. The decree is that he's, the decree concerning the son is, you're my son today, I've begotten you, you'll receive the nations of your inheritance, and you shall break them with the iron rod. The nations with iron rods. Let's look at the fourth and final, final stanza of this psalm, and that is the exhortation to serve the Lord. Look at verse 10. He tells them verse 10, now therefore be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. You see, in verses one through three, when we look, we should, we need to look at this contrast as it goes on. Here's, here's why in verse 10 they're told be wise. Here's verses one through three, we could summarize it this way. The nations think they can oppose God. Verses four through six, God is angered with them for thinking they can oppose Him. And His purpose is still fulfilled. Verses 7 through 9, the sun shall break the nations with the iron rod. Therefore, verse 10, nations, you be wise and don't do what happened in verses 1 through 3. That is, don't rage and plot against the Lord and His anointed. Be wise. Be instructed. It was time for them, now the nations, for the kings, for the judges of the earth, to realize what was going to take place. And they needed to realize that God, they weren't going to stop God, so you need to be wise. But not only do you need to be wise, here's what you need to do in response to that. You need to, verse 11, serve the Lord. Look at verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. I think it's important to understand that he uses two things he mentions here, with fear and with trembling. Oftentimes when we talk about fear, we'll talk about the fact there are two components to fear. And there are, there are two main components to fear. There's the side of actually being afraid, and there is the side of fear that sometimes is used in terms of reverence and respect towards God. What we have taking place here in verse 10 is the first of those, this is them being afraid. 
because of verse 8 and 9. You're the inheritance of the Son and He shall break you with a rod, so you need to be afraid. You have in verse 5 faced the displeasure and the wrath of God. You need to be afraid. Sometimes I think we look at that side of fear as a bad thing. Because we think, well, being afraid, we look at it as more of a bad thing that we need to have more of this reverence and respect. And we do. We need to have more reverence and respect towards God. That kind of fear. That godly fear. But what often happens is, think about it this way, when most of us, I would dare say, when most of us respond in obedience to the gospel, it was because we were afraid. We were afraid of being found in a lost condition. We were afraid of facing condemnation to hell for all of eternity. We were afraid of facing the wrath of God. And later on, reverence and respect grows and builds to where our motivation is more reverence and respect later on. But at first, our motivation often is that of fear. Well, the nations here, if they serve God, if they turn to God and serve Him and serve the Son, they will eventually, as we move throughout this, we'll see, have reverence and respect. We'll see that in verse 12 in a second. But at this point, this is motivated by the fear of facing the wrath of God and the wrath of the Son. You're going to be broken. You're going to be dashed. God's displeased with you. And so that fear motivates them to make a change. Just like the fear that would cause Nineveh to change because they faced, they were being, they were to be destroyed. They didn't turn all of a sudden and become, show all this reverence and respect. That might come. It started with the fact they were afraid of being destroyed. That's where we often, where often it starts is the fear of condemnation. And that's what we're seeing here in this text. We're seeing the nations, the kings, the judges of the earth, the peoples that are plotting need to have this fear because of the consequences of what they're going to do. And that should motivate them to make a change. Look at verse 12. Here's more reverence and respect. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Here's that reverence and respect. Kiss the son. He gives three reasons here. Number one, lest he be angry with you. Remember, for what you've already done, you have in verse 5 already faced the wrath of God. You're already displeased God. But he's saying here in verse 12, you need to make this change and kiss the son now because you're trying to have this wisdom and be instructed in verse 10. Now you're motivated by fear. Kiss the Son through this reverence and respect, lest He be angry with you too. God's already been angry with you, but start making a change right now, lest you have the anger of both. But not only that, look at the, sec- uh, the, the next line. And you perish in the way. You know what the end result is? Is you're going to perish. If you make no change, you will perish. So you need to make a change. Verse the latter half of that is when his wrath is kindled but a little. Better translation of that would be the ESV, for his wrath is, ki- is quickly kindled. You can kindle his wrath quickly by how you respond. Now you've made the realization that you need to make a change. Make that change. And you can kindle his wrath. Don't make him angry. Make the change. Serve God. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And kiss the Son... So you can, you can, uh, can, his wrath can be kindled and it'll be kindled quickly. And then verse, tw- verse 12, the latter half of that, blessed are those who trust in him. 
here's a change now. We have those that are putting their trust in God. This is not just a fear anymore. They now are trusting and putting their trust in God. And so this is the nations, those that now are turning. You can bless are those that trust in Him. These people can put their trust in Him if they will turn from what has been talked about in the previous verses. If they'll turn from the plotting and the raging of verses 1 through 3. So the psalm divides it into four major sections. We've seen that uh, so far. The opposition of the Lord and His anointed is the first stanza, 1 through 3. The Lord's indignation is the second stanza, that's 4 through 6. The divine decree concerning the anointed, which is 7 through 9, that's the third stanza. And the fourth and final stanza is the exhortation to serve the Lord, that's 10 through 12. That's the song itself. But but we want to look at the second part of that, and this is the use of the psalm in the New Testament. Psalm 2's use in the New Testament. Turn to Acts 4. Acts chapter 4. If you are, when you look in your Bibles, there will be several psalms that will have a heading. The first two psalms do not. They're what we would classify as anonymous psalms. There is no heading in Psalm 1 or Psalm 2. Or, but you look at Psalm 3, it's a Psalm of David. Psalm 4, it's a Psalm of David. And sometimes it'll give some background as to when that would have been written. But Psalm 2 has no heading. So we would classify it normally, we would just say that's an anonymous psalm. But we know from the New Testament who the writer of that is. Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, this is where... Peter and John have been taken and and been told no longer to preach in the name of Jesus after they've healed this this man in chapter three and then they're they're questioned in chapter four and they come back to their companions that is they come back to the other apostles and when they come together they begin praying in verse twenty four Lord you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and here's what they said in verse twenty five who by mouth of your servant David have said. And he quote, they quote from Psalm 2. Why did the nation rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. So I learned from Acts chapter 4, here's the first thing I learned about Psalm 2. Psalm 2 was written by David. It's a Psalm of David. There is no heading in your Bible that tells you that like it does for Psalm 3 and 4 and several of, and, and most of the other Psalms. But we know it's a Psalm of David because the apostles said that here in Acts chapter 4. Now, let's talk about the verses itself where they quote in this Psalm. This prayer for boldness here. This passage, the first couple of verses, verses 1 and 2, are applied to Herod and Pilate. Look at verse 25 and 26 of Acts 4 again. Why do the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. I'll stop right there for just a second. Remember, Psalm 2 is victory of the Lord's anointed. In the first few verses, we have opposition to the Lord's anointed. In fact, 
The Septuagint, which they're quoting from in verse 26, refers to against the Lord and His Christ. Christ just means the anointed one. He's the one that's anointed. That's Jesus. He makes an application in verse 27. Whom you anointed. So when it's quoting there, the one that is anointed of Psalm 2, we already know. We, we know this knowing it's messianic in nature, but they take here and they apply the anointed one to Jesus. Jesus whom you anointed. Now, let's pick back up in verse 27. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. Now look again at the psalm where they quote from it. Look at verse 26 of Acts 4. The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together. They just said that the Herod and Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. You know what that is? That's the people plotting. That's the nations that are raging. That's taking place here. That's applied to Herod and Pilate, Israel and the Gentiles here in verse 26. And the putting of Jesus to death. But continue on in verse 28. Here's something interesting to note. To do, verse 28, whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. If you're just doing a quick reading through Psalm 2, as we went through Psalm 2, we notice that it's that here you have the opposition, and here's the Lord's response of anger to the opposition, and then here in verse 6 that He still set up His king. But the fact is, verses 1 through 3 helped to set up the king. The nations thought, here we are raging, here we are plotting, here we are trying to break away, here we are trying to cast away the cords, and we're going to sort of put ourselves away. But what Peter, when he makes application of the psalm here, says is that they, that is Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel, actually did what God determined before to be done. So in verse 4, when you have God laughing, it's not just you laugh because you can oppose me, but here's why else God is laughing. What you're doing is the very thing I've determined you were going to do from the beginning. What you're doing is you're helping fulfill the very purpose you think you're trying to destroy. You thought you were opposing me and my anointed one, but instead you're determining, fulfilling the purpose that I determined from before. Jesus had to die that we could be forgiven of our sins. And when they took and put Him to death, they thought they were in opposition to the anointed. But instead, they were helping, they were putting Him to death. That was to help and fulfill the very purpose that He came to, to do. And that's taken and made application here in Acts chapter 4 from the second psalm. But verse 7, verse 7 is, the, is quoted often in the New Testament. It's quoted on three occasions. Direct quotation on three occasions. Turn to Acts 13. Here's the first of those. In Acts 13, Paul applies this verse to the resurrection from the dead. Acts 13. Here, as he is preaching, if you back on up to verse 26, verse 26 beginning, here Paul is preaching, and he said in verse 26, Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you whom fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem... And their rulers, because they did not know Him, nor even the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning Him. And by the way, this is interesting. Verse 27, that the people who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers... Well, who are the people in opposition? It's the people and it's the rulers in Psalm 2 that are in opposition. 
They did not know Him, nor the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath. Guess what? The Jews would have known about Psalm 2. That's one of the songs they would have, a song they would have sang. They would have heard Psalm 2. They would have heard about Psalm 2. No doubt they probably knew that Psalm 2 had application to the Messiah. They just didn't understand that it made application to Jesus. They did, that's how they did not know Him. And so they took and have fulfilled them. That is, they fulfilled what was spoken by the prophets, the very things read before them every Sabbath, by their condemning of Him. Sound familiar? And that what Peter just said over in Acts chapter 4? That Herod and Pilate fulfilled what God had determined to happen from beforehand? Look at verse 28. And they found no cause for death in him. They asked Pilate that he should be put to death. That's one of the people that over in Acts 4, Peter said that this had application to was Pilate. One of the people putting him to death. Now, when they had fulfilled all that is written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb. They put him to death. That's where the plot ends, comes to its end result, right? Jesus is put to death. That's where the plot went. The nation, the people put him to death. That's what, what Paul is pointing to here. He's not quoted from the psalm yet. We'll get to the quotation of Psalm 2 in a second. But you see, we're already seeing parallels between what he's talking about and the application of Psalm 2. Now, verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. The very one they put to death. The very one they condemned. God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. Listen to verse 32. And we declare to you glad tidings the promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us their children and that He raised up Jesus as it is written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. You know, when you read Psalm 2 and in verse 7, you would think just with a quick reading of it, you are my son today I have begotten you had reference to the birth of Christ. What this passage is actually referencing is not His birth, but His resurrection. In fact, Paul goes on to quote from another psalm, I will give you the sure mercies of David, verse 34. And then in verse 35, you will not allow your holy one to see corruption. He quotes from three psalms and makes application to the resurrection from the dead, including our very psalm we're studying tonight. You are my son, today I have begotten you. So, you know, you read through that, and if you're reading through it the first time, you're thinking, this is talking about somebody being uh, being born. But when you go over here to the New Testament, you know what I understand? He's talking about the resurrection from the dead. So I move through... Paul's sermon, he may only quote from one verse, but I see what the principles talked about in, in Psalm 2 brought up repeatedly in Acts 13 in his sermon there, leading to in verse 7 where he's raised from the dead. Now, that verse is quoted, he said three times. Here's another one of those. Direct quotation, Hebrews 1.5. Go to Hebrews 1. The book of Hebrews is pointing out that Christ is better. That's what the, what the book of Hebrews is about. Here you have these Hebrew Christians that are trying to go back to the old law. Here you have these Hebrew Christians that are trying to go back, but the point needs to be made, Christ is better. And so in Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, he makes the point, Christ is superior to the prophets. And when he makes the point he's superior to the prophets, you know, that God has spoken various times and in various ways, uh, spoken times past to the fathers by the prophets. But he made the point about how he spoke through Jesus. It was the express image of His person. How in verse 4, He was through Him that is Jesus who made the world. But in verse 4, He comes and He begins the argument of what's going to be for the rest of chapter 1, 4 through the end of the chapter, and of chapter 2, Christ is superior to angels. And here's what He says in verse 4. 
having became so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So he's obtained a more excellent name than the angels. What is that? Well, if you look throughout the passage in Hebrews, if you look throughout the passage in Hebrews chapter 1, he's pointing to in Hebrews 1 that he's superior not by the name of Jesus, but superior by the fact that he is called the Son of God. Because he says in verse 5, You are my son today, I have begotten you. He says at the end of that, you shall be to, uh, shall be to me a son. I will be to him the Father, he shall be to me a son. And then he contrasts that that was not said to the angels. Instead, the angels are told to worship the Son. Instead, the angels were spirits and ministers of fire of flame. It was of the Son that it was said that you were God. And he moves through and makes that argument about why he's superior to the angels later on. But he begins with, he has a more excellent name, he's the Son of God. And he appeals to Psalm 2 and verse 7. Now this is interesting. I want you to think a second. The Hebrew writer's name is not given. I believe indications are from the text it's probably Paul. If you read throughout Hebrews, that it, it follows the writings of Paul, the terminology he often uses. So think about this for a second. If Paul is the writer, here's something interesting. In Acts chapter 13 and in verse 33, Paul quotes from Psalm 2 and in verse 7 and makes application to this is the resurrection from the dead. When we just studied, before we were in 1 Corinthians, the book of Romans. In Romans 1 and in verse 4, he makes the point that by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus is declared the Son of God. So the Hebrew writer here is arguing that Jesus has a superior name, that is, He's the Son of God. And the first appeal is to a passage dealing with the resurrection from the dead. Because the resurrection proved Him to be the Son of God, you see? So you are my son today, I have begotten you. Not only is he called the son, but that passage is talking about the resurrection from the dead and the resurrection proved him to be the son of God. Do you see this passage proves him superior to angels because he is the son of God. But not only that, verse 7 is quoted later on in the same book. Hebrews chapter 5. Turn just a few pages over. Hebrews 5. Again, the book of Hebrews. The point of the book of Hebrews is Christ is better. Really, until you get to about chapter 10 and about verse 19, when he starts to make some, here's your application. That's the arguments made from chapter 1 through chapter 10 and about verse 18. Christ is better. He's superior. Chapter 5, Christ is a better high priest. That's what chapter 5 is about. Now, look at chapter 5. Start at verse 1. Let's understand the context. When we understand the context, it helps us appreciate and understand even more the psalm that is quoted here. It helps us understand the meaning of the psalm even more. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men and things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. That's the role of the high priest. Then he lists some qualifications of a high priest. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required as for the people, so also for himself to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he, but who is called by God, just as Aaron was. Now, let's think for a second. Really, two main things talked about the high priest here. The high priest can have compassion, because he's subject to weakness, and the high priest, in verse 5, does not honor himself. Well, Hebrews chapter 4 ends with this. That we have a high priest, that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us, because he was tempted in all points, as we are. So those two main qualifications. He's compassionate because of the weakness, because he understands the weakness, and he doesn't honor himself. Well, we know from Hebrews 4 that Jesus meets the first qualification of that because he was tempted in all points as we are yet without sin. 
But then in verse 5, the Hebrew writer says, so also Christ did not glorify Himself. So He fulfills the second of those. He does not honor or glorify Himself. Listen, so also Christ, verse 5, did not glorify Himself to become high priest, but He who said to Him, You are My Son, today I have begotten you. It was not Jesus saying that about Himself. You see? He did not honor Himself. That passage is taken and made application in Hebrews 5, 5 to make the point He did not glorify or honor Himself. It was said of Him, not Him saying of Himself. And that's why Christ is a superior high priest, because He did not glorify or honor Himself. And Hebrews, or Psalm 2 and in verse 7 is used and quoted in Hebrews 5, 5 to make that point. Along with the passage, you're a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, that was taken and said about Him as well. One more passage from the New Testament, then we'll talk about some practical lessons real quickly. Uh, verses 8 and 9 are quoted in Revelation several times, including in, uh, Revelation 2. Revelation 2. 26 and 27, we'll just read this passage. Here in Revelation chapter 2, the context of it is, remember this is writing to the seven churches of age. And there's a writing here in verse 24, Now to you I say, and the rest in Thyatira. This is what's written to the church of Thyatira. As many as do not have this doctrine, who, met, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. But hold fast what you have till I come, and he who overcomes and keeps my word until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. And he quotes from Psalm 2, that he shall break them with an iron rod and shall dash to pieces like a potter's vessel. Here's the application made in Revelation 2. Here you have Thyatira. Here you have those in Revelation. Remember the question in Revelation is they're crying out, How long? How long will this continue to go on? How long will there be suffering? The na- here, here in Revelation, you have the oppression that's being put on them by those on the church, by the government there. You have the, the, those in Rome that are oppressing them. And so as they're being oppressed, they're crying out how long? It sort of looks like, if you look at it from the outside, that w- the way that the Christians can worship is being dictated by the nations. But the point is made that you overcome, you keep my works until the end, and I will give power over the nation, give you the power over the nations because they will be broken or ruled with an iron rod and they shall be dashed like a potter's vessel, you see? So it's made there an application of the persecution. You're crying out how long, understand this, continue to do what you need to do. Don't worry about them. Don't worry about what they're saying outside. Don't worry about the oppression. You do what you have to do. And they will be dealt with. That's going to happen at a later time. But you understand, don't don't worry about what the nations are saying. They're not dictating what you do. You you still do what you have to do even in the face of oppression and even in the face of persecution. That's the point being made here in Revelation from this text. Now, we've seen the text, we've seen the psalm in the New Testament. Let's talk about some practical lessons. And then the lessons will be yours. Some practical lessons we'll see. Let's go back to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. First lesson I see is those in authority have always opposed Christ. Times here in our own country, when we celebrate today the 4th of July, Independence Day, and we look at the way things are going, and sometimes we may get frustrated and think things are headed in a direction we don't want them to head. Maybe we could be facing losing our freedoms in the future. We celebrate our freedom on the 4th of July. That may be something we may eventually have to give up. I don't know. We might. 
maybe not in our lifetimes, maybe in our children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren's lifetime, if not in ours, that we have to give those up. But we look at it as though because we live in a nation where we can freely gather together and we can freely worship as if what's taking place is something unique. As if it's something that's never happened before. As if those in authority opposing religion is something that ne- the world has never seen. But the fact is, that's something that's always been around. Remember Psalm 2, the nations raised and the people bought plotted vain things. You know who it was that put Jesus to death? It was those in the places of authority that had the right to put Him to death. You know, the Jews may have brought Him and wanted Him put, but the decision had to be made by those in authority. By those in the places in the government. When the Christians are being persecuted in the first century, it was being persecuted by those in places of authority. I think of the passage in 1 Peter where he tells them not to think it strange concerning the fiery trials which try you. We act as if the way things are headed, the way things look, is something we never imagined could happen. As if it was some strange thing. But we got to understand, this is nothing new. We may have never faced it before. But there are others that have. In fact, think about this for a second. We act like it's strange it never happened. We think, man, we're getting tough times. Maybe our freedoms are being taken away. There are places around the world right now where they're having to worship in secret not to face persecution from the government. There are places today that still worship in secret and we think it's bad because they don't like what we say, but we're still allowed to gather together. People may not like what we say, may be opposed to what we say, but nobody's coming in that door and taking us all off to prison right now because of it. We think it's strange like it's never happened. Not only has it happened in the past, it's happening in other places around the world right now. We need to understand that's not something new and something strange. We're still, we still, when all that's going to take place, have to do our part. This is the people in Revelation did. In Revelation 2, where that passage is quoted, you're facing persecution, you do your part. Don't worry about what the nations are doing. Don't worry about what the rulers are doing. You still do your part. But you know, I do think it's something else interesting we need to realize that sometimes, in this case, when we talk about those authority being in opposition, sometimes it serves a greater good and a greater purpose. You think about Psalm 2. If you take a step back and you read through Psalm 2, forget what we saw in the New Testament for just a second. Just for a second, just set that aside. And let's just think about Psalm 2 for just a second. Exactly what it said. The nations are raging. They're plotting. They set themselves in opposition. They gather together and they oppose the Lord and His anointed. That's opposition to God, okay? That's what we're seeing take place. That's what we may see in our future. The very purpose Peter points to in the New Testament Remember, when we look at it from just here, it just looks like they're just doing bad things in opposition. Remember, Peter in Acts 4 made the point, and Paul in Acts 13, that they were fulfilling the very purpose of God. So maybe the time comes where we face trials, where things become more difficult. But there may be something going on that we may never understand. Things get difficult for us, but maybe that's the way things turn, and then God may punish us for that. Maybe things get difficult and maybe we do give our life in service to God like those in the first century had to. But guess what? 
if we do, we have our reward. You see, we never under, we, we look at something sometimes from what's happening right now and need to realize that sometimes there's a bigger picture. And when you look at Psalm 2, they're putting him to death, how terrible it is, but they were fulfilling the very purpose of God. Sometimes there may be a greater purpose that's going to happen by what's going to take place. We may not know, we won't know what that is. At least not at the time. We have to understand that in the end, we still have our part to do. And if we do our part, we'll still have our reward, even if it costs us our life. And then you know what happens? If we, if it costs us our life and service to God, we have our reward all the sooner. I'll tell you a second lesson. I learned from this text. God is angered by opposition to Christ. In this text specifically, they were opposing Him and they put Him to death. That's what's talked about and this is talking about those that are going to put Him to death. But think about this for just a second. We too, by the manner of life in which we live, can live in opposition to Christ. I'm not saying that we're plotting against Him like the people here were. I mean, we're not the people that may be putting Him to death. But remember in Matthew it makes the point about those that acknowledge me before men I acknowledge before my Father, and those that deny me before men, Him I will deny before my Father. That passage is dealing with the manner of life of which we live. You may not ever say that I don't believe in Jesus. In fact, you might say that you do believe in Jesus. But at the same time, live the kind of life that the way you live, what it is saying is, I do not believe in Jesus. You see? You may believe, you may acknowledge to others you believe, but the way you live your life may be a life that says that you don't believe because you're living in opposition to His Word. And when you're in opposition to His Word, you're in opposition to Him. And you know what? God is angered by that. You know what happens? We face the wrath of God. We don't want to face the wrath of God. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We don't want to face His wrath. Take a third thing. We should serve God. That's pointed out in the text. Serve God. Serve Him with fear and trembling. You, being in opposition to Christ brings about God's anger. We need to be afraid to live in such a way as to face the wrath of God. And that fear can motivate us, verse 10 and 11, to service to God. Because I'm afraid to face the consequences of not serving Him. Say one last thing, and the lesson will be yours. We are blessed if we trust in God. We put our trust in God, verse 12, we are blessed. We are blessed. And so we need to put our trust in God so that we can be blessed. Be those that are blessed. As the, the psalmist points out here. In fact, he says that all who put their trust in Him are blessed. So if we all put our trust in God, we can all be blessed. That's Psalm 2. Victory of the Lord's anointing. I hope that study was beneficial. We look through the psalm, through the second psalm, some important lessons we can learn, especially from its use in the New Testament. Um, this application made to us today. It may be that there are more, one or more present this evening who've never responded in obedience to the gospel. If you're here, you're not guaranteed of another opportunity. For what is our life but a vapor that appears for a short time and then vanishes away? So why would you not respond now? You've heard the Word of God and you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He came, He lived, He died, and He rose the third day. And we've seen that from the second psalm. Then would you not repent of your sins, confess your faith in Him, and be buried in the waters of baptism to rise and walk in the newness of life?
Maybe you're here. Maybe you've done that. Somewhere along the line you say, I've not lived as I should. I was in opposition to Christ. And you can make acknowledgement of that. If it's of a private nature, take it to God privately in prayer. But if of a public nature, if you'll repent of that and acknowledge that, then we'll pray with you and for you for God to forgive you that you don't have to face His wrath. But no matter what your need is, if you're here this evening and we can assist you in any way, would you not come forward as together we stand and as we sing?